0: So, Joel, you've got enormous wealth of experience in running big teams and working at all sorts of levels within organisations throughout your career. If there was one thing from a leadership perspective that you think might be valuable to our listeners today, from your experience, what might that be?
1: It's the realisation that whether it's uh, in your work life or your personal life, Whatever happens to you, whatever event happens to you, nobody can take away your ability to choose how you want to feel about that and how you want to respond to that. You can always own that, take the ownership for personal choice. Hello, our
0: guest today is Joel Mitchell, Managing Director of Stagecoach Southeast, part of one of the biggest public transport companies in the UK. With a fleet of 350 buses and 1,300 staff, his team's responsible for 40 million passenger journeys a year. Joel's experience includes operations, performance and customer services. He holds a master's degree in leadership and is a qualified coach and mentor. With a wealth of experience at every level within large organizations, he knows a thing or two about leading frontline teams in highly operational businesses. He's also been through some tough times and he uses these personal experiences to motivate his team to face their challenges with resilience and kindness. I'm Robert Diggings and this is Highly Relational, the podcast about creating, leading and developing great teams at work, along with all the possibilities and messiness of enabling and inspiring people to work together. We have one simple aim, to help you create exceptional teams with the people you work with or the people you lead. In our conversation today, Joel explains that your brain is not you and your thoughts are not you and how to figure out who you truly are. Why you must have a version of yourself that exists even after you've taken off all your coats, your leadership coat, your friend coat, your parent coat, and how therapy and coaching can lead to a greater understanding of yourself and the people you lead. Leadership can take countless forms. For some, being a leader means being at the forefront, being the driving force that keeps everyone moving. For others, Leadership is about guiding from the sidelines, or even from behind, empowering others to take the lead, to shine and grow, and so become inspiring leaders themselves. Joel's approach to leadership is rooted in a genuine desire to understand and connect with his team, creating a culture where leaders emerge and everyone is valued. He's also a big believer in the importance of self-awareness, how we must overcome our ego and transition from an I to a we mentality. I began our conversation by asking Joel how his self-identity has changed over the years.
1: It's changed a lot. It's changed a lot. It comes from awareness, I think, really, in terms of me as a person and and learning a bit more about humanity and society as, as I've gone along in, in my own kind of career and life, really. So I'm 47 now, I've had good bit of time in in the workplace. And, and I've learned a bit more about me, I think, and ego and how over-identification or identification with role can detrimentally impact your ability to carry out that role. From my own perspective, I think what I would describe as a kind of maladjusted schema, as I've learned, it's now called over the years, formed in childhood, informed my desire to really please people which is great if you're passionate about customer service and you work in the transport industry because within the transport industry sector in particular it is working with people for people so if you are people-centric that's great if you want to please people that's great but at some point the realization came in me that it was self-serving So the need to please was driven by an internal desire to for acceptance and validation which again if you're aware isn't the end of the world provided you are not making decisions in the boardroom for the sake of harmony rather than what's the right thing to do in this context for this organization for long-term sustainability i've got this colleague in front of me who needs something and i want to fulfill that need because i want them to be happy And actually going around and saying yes to 1,500 people individually won't necessarily honour or bless your leadership team or the people that you said yes to because it might be outside the context of the organisational aims or your strategic plan. And so it's about being much more aware about who, who you are, what you're bringing to that role and what your whole kind of point is and your purpose is. And I think if you can line up behind a value set that is about truth and love and isn't out with that and you can be aware of when your ego's in play or you are just showing up as you, then you'll be much more effective in the world, let alone in your job.
0: And I think it takes an enormous amount of work to say what you've just said, an an enormous amount of personal work to see how our ego constructs Mm. can be very much self-serving, of course, um, from a survival point of view, and that they can be created through our uh, early experience. Mm. So I imagine that's been quite a journey for you to get to the place where you can talk about that in the way you just have.
1: Yeah, I mean, it really has, and and quite a lot of it is recent over the last couple of years. I think probably on my own personal learning journey, the vast majority of the richness has appeared or kind of crystallised for me over the last... Two or three years in particular, through some really great things like having super amount of therapy, which I would highly recommend to everybody, to, regardless of your own kind of sense of self at the minute. It's just great to be able to understand a bit more. I'd like to add that I'm not necessarily very good at it yet. And, you know, there's a difference between understanding and applying it. And from my perspective, being aware of a kind of a fast-paced nature. I don't often give myself space to stop and think about, is this me at the minute or is this ego-based? Am I over-identifying with something, which is generally the construct of ego. It's an it's a over-identification with a role or thought patterns, and that can then create the wrong decision-making criteria in your mind in that moment. So it's really hard work when you're busy and there's a lot going on and you're trying to make decisions to stop and be mindful for a moment and ask yourself, right, is this thought me or is it my brain? Because actually my brain isn't me and my thoughts aren't me and my brain often isn't my friend either. And that realising that your thoughts aren't you and your brain isn't you, but you are the entity that realises that, is quite a complicated and complex mindset anyway. to then to remind yourself that that's actually what you've learned, stop for a minute, pause, go back to the discussion that you're having, trying to work out are you doing this to self-serve or is it for the greater good? It's very complicated, very time-consuming. I'm not very good at it, but I'm very glad I know about it.
0: You're here today. We've never met before. No. You're here today because of a LinkedIn post that you wrote a couple of months ago. Yeah. Um, I won't read the whole thing because mm. it's in the public domain and anybody interested could have a look at it for themselves. I reread it, um, Joel on the train in this morning and it moved me to tears. Mm. It is an extra I mean, for you, it you may you may think, well, no, I'll just mm. bash that out and it's nothing. But for me, it was an extraordinary bit of self-disclosure. It starts with you saying, Here are some thoughts on a Saturday evening as I reflect on one of the most challenging weeks I've faced in my career. And for me, the the post is full of contradiction and, and paradox and uh And because of that, I know it's full of great wisdom, Mm. which is why I find it so uh, inspiring. I'll get you to say a little bit about why the week was so challenging, but then you generously offer um, four possible learnings um, that you you hope will be useful to those in your network. One is about having some therapy, which you've already talked about and how that has been so important to your mental health. The second learning you had from this very challenging week was about checking in with feelings and about naming the feelings that Mm. we have as we're having them. Your third point was uh, the importance of self-care and looking after ourselves by being with loved ones or um, going for a bike ride, you suggest, or um, just getting outside. And then lastly, you you talk about this over-identifying with our ego or our patterning, and we'll talk a little bit about more about that because you've got a lovely metaphor to do with wearing different coats mm. that represent different roles. Tell me a little bit about where you were at at the end of that week that led you to write this post for your
1: network? So I think in that moment I was reflective because I'd done a bit of self-care and I'd just come back in off my bike and I, I used to do a lot of running but I'm getting am older now and I keep braking so I'd got my bike mended and I'd been out and my fiance had encouraged me to go out because she could she's very good at sensing quicker than I where I am at. She's brilliant for me in that way because she would challenge me and let me know if my ego's flaring up <laughs> in a really good way. And then so I'll, I'll, I'd come back in and I'd been reflecting on on the bike ride. And I mean, there's quite a long story to it really, Robert, in the end, but I joined the bus industry. I left 20 years of a very happy railway career to join the bus industry because I found something online when I was considering whether to take the job or not called The Value of Bus to Society by an um, organisation called Greener Journeys and a lady called Claire Hague had written it. And my childhood I was very much informed by my mum and dad being Christian evangelists. We lived in Fiji for a few years while they worked out there in churches. So I've kind of got a conditioning around being a bit missional, wanting to do the right thing for society. And that is within me, and it's probably, would we'll unpack it later, around ego and conditioning and childhood. But I took this job because I wanted to be able to look after people and communities and the organisation. I live in the community that we're serving. I wanted to grow bus use. I wanted to get more people on the bus. It's the right thing for the environment. It's the right thing for society. It's the right thing for the economy. And I believe in all of that. So, And to find myself in a position where because of the pandemic and because of bus use and because I have to maintain sustainability or I can't do any of those things longer term and, and re-baselining is absolutely the right thing to do. but. On the Friday, I'd been called to just a a village hall in a village not far from where I live uh, that we serve. And when I got there, I thought something else was going on because I couldn't get in, I couldn't park, I couldn't get in the hall. uh, And I thought it was a changeover between what had gone on before and what was happening now. But it wasn't. It was just the entire village had turned up in protest of the changes that we'd publicised or certainly consulted for their bus network. I stood there at the front. My colleague, um, Danny, our ops director, came with me for moral support. Another colleague of mine, Danny, was also there because he lived in the village and he'd been very supportive. But I stood in the front and I listened for a couple of hours to trauma, distress, suffering, a story from a lady on the front row who was pregnant and blind and wasn't able to access the local hospital because the bus service that we'd proposed wasn't going to be fit for purpose, but she couldn't drive. She couldn't get to her Maternity checks. She couldn't get to her eye appointments. And, um, yeah, and I'd like, and D- Danny said that she did really well and you held yourself well and you explained the context because, you know, I think people understand there's no you know, desire for this to happen. People we're not desperately trying to remove buses from the road. So when I got home from the session, I just felt I had it because I like people to be happy and I am making people unhappy. So from a, over-identification with the role as managing director. and responsible for looking after that community. I feel like I'm failing. I felt like I'm failing. And from a context of me as a human, what I line up behind in my own value sets, I felt like I'd let them down. And from a context of my own sense of what matters to the world, I didn't feel like I was doing that either, certainly in the short term. And I'm very fortunate that the learnings I've had more recently helped me to realise that I was reflecting and over-identifying too much with myself. So if you've got an intersection of self in a Venn diagram and an intersection of role in a Venn diagram, those two things had really kind of overlapped. So I felt like me, Joel, this guy, this entity, whatever I am, wasn't good enough wasn't showing up in the way I wanted to, hadn't delivered for people, people weren't happy and and I want to make people happy.
0: So And what you're describing, I, I, I know that many people listening to us today will have their own version mm. of those kinds of deep inner conflicts. But the easier route, of course, is to uh, numb that feeling in some way or distract mm. away from it. Mm. And what what I, I'm interested in, in understanding is how you processed it, because I think you did it in a in a significantly harder but potentially much wiser way.
1: Yeah, so I I got myself into the thought pattern of let down. So my, I was identifying with my thoughts. Uh, my brain was talking to me. My brain was saying, you've let these people down. This isn't what, uh, this isn't okay. But I acknowledged that, that that thought pattern I didn't want to identify with. And it was egoic. It wasn't within the context of, what really mattered from a longer term as it was we were able to reflect and change and deliver for those people in the right way because we gave it more time and we thought slightly differently and we were a bit more innovative which is great because it was a catalyst for a business choice there but i was able to come to that solution with my team because i was free from the negative thoughts that i was letting rule my choices so i was clear from shame and pain and suffering because I knew that I wasn't right to identify with what my head was telling me. My head was telling me, "You've let them down. You're, you know, you're no good. You're a baddie. This isn't what you signed up for."
0: And some would say to to stay with the theme of ego that that is your superego. That's your inner critic, ripping you apart mm. for what it somehow believes is the way you should be in the world, and what you're kind. I think you're telling us that you were able to disidentify from that exactly. and see the situation from a from a much more from a much bigger perspective. Exactly
1: that. So so a recent learning for me is that my thoughts aren't me. Fundamentally, my thoughts are not me. My brain isn't me. And sometimes it isn't my friend either. Um, so
0: Joel, can I ask you a really tricky um, hmm. metaphysical question? Because I'm so interested in where you might go with it. And that is, so what is you? Hmm. Or who are you, which some would say is the most fundamental question we can ask ourselves um, uh, because it points to something other than our brains or our egos or our superegos. So can you speak to that or is that tricky to capture? Who who are you then, Joel, if you're not those things?
1: So I'm nearly there with this now. It's taken a long time and um, if anybody's interested, a guy called Eckhart Tolle who wrote a book called The Power of Now is quite helpful in this space. But for me... If you are not your thoughts and your brain, what you are is the entity that realizes that. So one of Tolle's stories is, is really interesting and it you know, it can be a bit inflammatory, but what Tolle says is if you, if you walk down the street and there's somebody walking the other way or crosses your path and they're talking to themselves, muttering to themselves, people will look at them and think that person's not okay. They might be mad. Yet we spend most of our lives talking to ourselves. The only difference between us and that person we've just decided is mad is that we're not verbalizing those thoughts. We're listening to them and we're probably acting on them. But essentially the same question I've I've been having a dilemma with. So if I'm not my thoughts and my identification with my thoughts or my role or my physical form, then what am I? And, and my recent learning is that I am the entity that realizes that. My consciousness realizes that. So if you can hear what your brain's saying to you and stop for a minute and be aware enough to say I don't I'm not sure that's all right actually I don't think I I don't think I sign up to what you're saying to me today brain so I'm I'm just going to reject that thought pattern today that that's you that's that's who I am it's the awareness
0: let's go back to this idea of roles and coats which mm. was your mm. last um piece of learning in the LinkedIn post mm. that, that I saw. Tell us what you
1: mean by that and, and why it was important to you to share it. This meant a lot to me. And it was it wasn't something I made up. This is an, another piece of learning, which generally is how my life has played out. I've learned stuff and tried to apply it as I've gone. The Coates analogy is really powerful. It's basically saying don't over identify with any one of the roles that you've got in your life because you aren't that role. Do not over-identify with anything because it isn't you. It's just one of the things that you play you act out in life i remember really clearly my my son jasper is 14 and i remember reading him it actually makes me really emotional i remember reading him a story when he was about 3 or 4 and um getting to the end of the book and i hadn't been on my phone and i wasn't doing that kind of busy But I I absolutely wasn't aware. And I remember a realisation, I got to the end of the book and I couldn't remember a word that I'd read him. I'd read him the whole book and he didn't know. He actually probably did pick it up in the the psyche. But I'd managed to fulfil the role of father, but I'd been thinking about the role of what my job was at the time. So this is about being present to the thing that you were doing in that moment, learning one. And also recognising that your authentic self comes to all of those roles. And and the coats are a really helpful analogy. So I've got a managing director of a bus company coat. I've got a fiancé coat. I've got a dad coat. I've got a stepdad coat. You know, I've got a joke and he said rubbish cricketer coat. I, I have. I'm awful at cricket, but I enjoy it. And I'm enjoying being part of a team. But I work really hard not to wear any of the coats at the same time. Because, as I said, you get hot doing that. And also, if you wear too many of the coats for for too long, it will get dogged and tired. And then the final learning in that is when, and this was really nice about the ego, really good learning in terms of that is, you asked me earlier, who are you if you're not your thoughts or your identification with, with any of those coats? When you take every single coat off, name everything you do in life, friend, husband, partner, wife, name them all, take all those coats off, you are what's left.
0: So where I'd like to take this now is, is to the leadership role. Mm. How does all that you've just told us about the personal work that you're doing and have done on yourself to arrive at the conclusion that you are your consciousness, mm. which um, on one level might sound very uh, esoteric or uh, metaphysical, uh, and on another is perhaps just a very simple expression of, the truth of the human condition. What does that mean about how you lead? And our conversation today is oriented around teams and Mm. how teams function and how we create uh, the environment for people to work together in exceptional and remarkable ways.
1: So, yeah, it's very different for me just recently over the last couple of years. Things have changed fundamentally. They've changed very much my personal life. I'm in a much better place thanks to like my family structure, the learning from the therapy has been huge. And being able to apply that in the workplace has meant, I guess, for me, a fundamental shift in my own style. So colleagues that have worked with me in the past, and some of them will be listening to this, and I hope they find this helpful because I've met some wonderful, wonderful people throughout my career, will probably recognise me as a, someone that that a, is a nice guy. One of the things that I really like to Espouse in a leadership construct is kindness, not in a weak, softly, softly way. Although I think in my early career, I remember being the driver depot manager at Wimbledon Park and my colleagues there, the drivers there, who I, I loved. It was probably my favourite job other than the one I've currently got. He used to call me the man from Del Monte because you'd ask Joel for something and he would say yes, which I'm pretty sure my boss at the time, who was also excellent, liked to a point, but would wish I didn't say yes to everybody. And I'd started going through a coaching journey at that time as well and my coach and I were trying to develop more of a rigor and a strictness around results delivery because I've always had the kind of philosophy that if you look after the people then the results will follow and I stand by that 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 has never changed for me and and our five year strategic plan is called people at the heart which in, in my current role which is about looking after your colleagues so they look after the customers and the community People first, colleagues first, customer, community. And we talked about my kind of own narrative being rigorous focus on people and a rigorous focus on results, which is pretty cool. And I sort of signed up to that while still hiding behind the fact that I really liked rigorous focus on people and sort of <laughs> pretended that I did the other bit, but didn't really. And I think what has changed for me in the recognition of where this ego and the the suboptimal schema, personality deficiencies, if you like, and I don't. You know, I want to be critical, and I don't want other people to think, oh no, I don't. You know, I don't really agree with what Joel's saying there. We arrive in this world without any conditioning, and then our experiences form us as we go, and our ego emerges based on our experiences, and some other bits and pieces that you know I, I haven't got my head around yet. But generally, what you've experienced, and that will show up. If you're not mindful about whether you choose it to or not, Viktor Frankl said something that I read. He came across a, a concept that he termed the last of the human fi- um, freedoms, which is the concept that, as I said at the start, no matter what happens to you, nobody can take away your power to choose your attitude, your your own way, not in a kind of petulant way. And Frankl had
0: that insight in, um, in a, Nazi he did concentration in, a, in a concentration camps, camp, yeah, where he realised that no matter what was being done to him. And that people there physically, he had um, sole choice about his own internal process. Exactly that. And He went on to develop a form of mm. psychotherapy based on that. Yeah. And many people will have read um, mm.
1: uh,
0: his, about his work. And it, remind me what the title is of that uh, of his main main book. Is it Is it Man's, "Man's Search for, for meaning. meaning"? Yeah.
1: And it, it's, I think, for me and a lot of the personal challenges I've had in in work and my personal life, I've. I've watched that emerge and I I will talk a little bit about that later if there's the opportunity to, but so back into the the context in the leadership space in the workplace, the, it's the realization that a rigorous focus on people is great within a context and that you, but you need to do it from a place of sincerity and make sure it's behind the strategic aims of the business. And you're not just happening to be doing it because it's your hobby or worse still, it's a, It's a maladjusted schema that you've used as a coping mechanism in the past. And it and it looks outwardly like a really good thing to have, but often it can be starting to damage the organization. So for me, over time, the realization of that has helped me to really ramp up the focus on results, whilst not losing the focus on people, because that's inherent in me. But what I really needed to focus on was the rigor around KPI delivery, measures, management information management, management, to the point where now my own narrative is basically a rigorous focus on results. I, I went from rigorous focus on people, rigorous focus on results, to rigorous focus on people, rigorous focus on results, to rigorous focus on results, rigorous focus on, results, rigorous focus on people. Now it's just rigorous focus on results. The people stuff is inherent.
0: So you're saying now that the, you, you have transitioned to now focusing on results but baked into that because of who you are and the personal journey and development journey you've been on mm. the rigorous focus on people is is built in absolutely that it's absolutely it's, that. it's hardwired
1: into the way you lead and therefore doesn't need to be named exactly right yeah thank you for clarifying that i don't want anybody to think for a minute i've decided not to care about people anymore quite the opposite it is it's so ingrained in who i am as a human in my own construct sense of self, authentic self, or whatever you want to term it, that I'm really comfortable to not have to name it as part of my own kind of strategic narrative, which sounds a bit kind of management speaky. But, but yeah, I think that that makes the point really nicely. And that is very, very
0: different, of course, to a rigorous focus on results that that ignores the people that are involved. Okay. They are like chalk and cheese, aren't they?
1: Yeah. and And I think Again, a lot of my own personal learnings has been around leadership versus management from a kind of academic level. Early on in my sort of leadership career, I would talk a lot about leadership. Really aspire to be a great leader. You know, I was one of those. Remember some of my colleagues. I I, I left um, Southwest Trains. I want to work for Southern for a bit, and then had a period of time on gardening leave in between returning and I, I read Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, which meant a lot to me. But I came back great into... great book. It's a great book. But I came back into Southwest Trains where I'd been before. I had three, three very happy years at Southern, came back to Southwest Trains in a, in a deep alliance role, which was brilliant because it was connected and collaborative and, and full system and lots of other kind of management stuff that I'd really got excited about. But I was overly evangelical about this book I'd read and immediately... Got my really close mates, some of whom I'm still great mates with, would be like, ah, oh, here he comes with, with his evangelising again. Please stop it. But um, there was such richness in learning around the need for management in my world. When I did my master's, one of the things I learned, one, was leadership is an essentially contested concept. Go and ask anybody what they how to define leadership, they'll all give you a different answer. And that both leadership and management are absolutely critical to be successful in a, whatever you want to call it, leadership management, you can use those terms interchangeably. But for me, leadership is about people, management is about task. And you have to be strong at both of those if you want to be successful in a big leadership type role. And you have to be able to focus on both of those. And well-balanced people will be able to kind of naturally focus on both. And individuals, and this is where my own journey comes in, the way that I lived my life when I was a child meant that humanity rightly had a huge space, but I probably, when I came into the workplace, didn't really give credit to the need for task structure. So leadership without management can be chaotic and arguably dangerous. And management without leadership can be obtuse and boring and lack heart and inspiration. And I should also caveat that everything we're talking about today all right is my subjective view of the world it's how i see the world through my frame of reference and if it's helpful for some people brilliant it won't be for everybody but is yeah it's this is kind of how my paradigm has shifted so my scratched glass lens that i looked at through the world is is seeing things a bit differently now
0: yeah and, I, and i'm really appreciating and i know our listeners will be too the clarity uh, with which you're articulating your personal process and how things have changed for you and why they've changed and when, and the meaning that you're making of it. Because at, at the end of the day, that's all all any of us have got. We're all uh, making it up as we go along. Yeah, exactly that. The question is, how are we making it up and what is the history of that making up and what choice do we have about it? Yeah. Bring us back to your team and how these orientations that you now have um, on a day to day I'd be really keen to understand something of how how this plays out on a day-to-day basis with the people in the exec team that you lead Mm. and then in the cascading that into the wider business if you've um, attempted to do that but talk about the exec team that you lead as managing director Mm. what are some of the changes what what are the consequences of these insights that you're um, telling us
1: about? I think there's a closeness in that unit that I really appreciate. So for a start, I think if you're leading anybody, you have kind of two jobs there. One is you're leading the team for the organisational vision. And two is you've got a responsibility to those individuals as their leader to try and help them have better lives or have more insight or try and understand a bit more about where they are in the world. Just little things just recently have shifted. So we do a bit of team development as a group. Ironically, probably initially for cost pressures, it, instead of doing our over sort of more traditional overnighter at the local hotel with our consultant leadership development specialist, who I've learned a lot from over the years, I was worried about you know some of the challenges we were facing financially, the financial pressures, trying to find some other ways of doing things. So we we actually went glamping as a unit because it was much much cheaper, and my goodness, the the richness that we got from being in that being in the outside for a start. You know, I remember you you referred back to one of those learnings that I wrote on the LinkedIn post was kind of get outside, experience nature. And, you know, even the subtle differences about being in a hotel, going back to your room, I mean, colleagues listening to this, will have done lots of different leadership stuff and taken value from it. Once you've finished in your team room, you then go back to your individual room, you probably check your emails, you get on your phone, catch up during the day. Um, and then you'll go down to the restaurant and then maybe have a beer afterwards and a game of cards and a and a chat. And it, it's really great, it is enhancing. But my goodness, not having any signal, you know, we we told the team that we were out of reach and and how to contact if there's something happened. And then there just was no break between being as a unit, and it was amazing. And there is a closeness in that unit. So I think developing genuine authentic relationships human connections really matters in a leadership team. Not everybody subscribes to that, and I understand that isn't for everybody, but it works for me and the teams that I've been a part of and also led. So this isn't just a, a Joel kind of leadership philosophy. I know that I've become a much more effective leader when I feel part of a community of practice or part of a family or part of a group of people that genuinely care about each other as humans, not just the organizational aims of the business. Ironically, there's a definite link to improved organizational outcomes if you can build that proper skin in the game. And and picking the right people and having diversity uh, diversity in your team and different skill sets and different personality bases. And we do a lot of the insights work in our team. We there's a lot of that's very strong within Stagecoach. And I've always appreciated that we we could do that internally too. So from a a team perspective, I'm not sure this team would have survived through the difficult challenges we're facing at the minute if we weren't as tight a unit as we are. How did you get? Uh, I'm I'm really curious about the um,
0: just this description of this offsite, the the glamping. Of, how how long was that that you were in? Just two days. Two days. Yeah. So one one night one under under yeah. canvas and two days together where. Yeah. I, I, I'm I'm putting words in your mouth slightly, but it sounds to me like you came together as a community, and it wasn't this. Let's go off. You know, there's an hour now, and you can go back to your room and do your Correct. email. It was a thing that happened mm. for 48 hours, mm. and you were all in it all, kind of all the time. Yeah. How did you get your team? I mean, this may not be a relevant question, but I can I can imagine people listening to this going, "Well, I could, I, even if I wanted to do that, there are three people on my team who just I would not be able to." Agree to that experience because it's too much for them. It would be it would be outside of what they considered or felt was a normal thing to do at work. So, mm. tell us something about how how that was for your team that, that that you were suggesting this, and and were they all just totally up for that and saw that as a, a an obvious thing to do together, or was that something that you had to negotiate and and explain?
1: I think a few years ago we wouldn't have been able to. I think the team has come together through some difficult challenges that has built that richness of relationship already to a point. But equally, there was a bit of negotiation. So myself and my colleague who were pulling the day together, the two days together, because we this wasn't just an offsite to you know have a jolly. We've got some serious strategic changes that we need to make. And to get away from the challenge of the workplace i would recommend to anybody for that clarity and that space to breathe think equally we weren't going to camp because i wouldn't have been able to convince people to do that so so the glamping was a was a compromise already logistical things like well, i wouldn't have expected anybody to share accommodation so everybody would have their own hut which is what we did and explaining to people beforehand that that was the case and this is what was happening and sharing the site, plans of the site, photos of what people could expect. And I'm really proud of them because actually, you know, there's a couple of my colleagues in that team who didn't immediately think, oh, this is a great idea. Most of them, you know, oh, no, what's he up to now? Um, (laughs) But even little learnings like the last couple of executives we've had, we've downloaded the Headspace app, and we start our exec meetings with just three minutes of mindfulness, just to get us into that place that we were when we experienced being together in the outside. And other colleagues, and, and you know, there'll be some of our frontline staff listening to this, might be thinking, "My goodness, you know, this isn't this isn't what is needed." It is absolutely what is needed. That clarity and that peace and that stillness to face the challenges ahead is fundamental. If you're in the Heat of the battle and it's fast-paced and in a bit of crisis, I would firmly recommend from my own learnings that you find the stillness first to make those grounded choices. Yeah, so let's let's just explore that
0: a bit. What do you believe all of this delivers mm. for the business? Because mm. you're you're you've said now that you're focused on results because the human, the people side is baked in. Mm. So what does this deliver for the business from a results perspective that you believe if you did it the normal way, you wouldn't be able to achieve or you wouldn't do mm. uh, do, do it so quickly or whatever the the benefits are?
1: Yeah, okay. I think the rigorous focus on people, rigorous focus on results into focus on results and people is, is about me personally. So our five-year plan, people at the heart, remains all about people. So... Everyone else, you know, I I just don't need to over infuse from my own perspective. We need to get the balance right and keep driving people through the organisation. But as an ex- at an executive team level, what this kind of thing does is drives us to a, what I'd call a culture of we, so a culture of interdependence. And you know, people might listen to this; they they might be recognizing that. There's a racket in my head that's a mix of kind of academic stuff that I've learned. There's a bit of experiential stuff that I've learned. And it's I'm trying to sort of row through it all. But one of the things that really struck a chord with me, and in fact, we've got a piece of work in the team called Culture of We, um, which is all about strategic change on how people feel about working in this organisation. Stems from a piece that I I read with Stephen Covey's book actually, which is about this thing called the maturity continuum, which comes back to personal choice, which comes back to um, the ability to choose. So the the theory states that you work through three levels. So as you, as a child, you are what's called dependent, um, and your mood and how you show up is very much dependent on what other people do. So. You've done this to me and I feel this way. There's no acknowledgement that I can choose how I want to feel. I don't have to choose. I don't give you all my power to make me feel anything. I'm in charge of me. So it's very much you. You didn't come in for me. You haven't given me this. You said that to me and I feel sad. You, you, you. And that's basically a construct of in a child frame of mind. But a lot of humanity don't get the opportunity or the insight or the, or the learning to shift past that. The next stage is called independent, which is a culture of I. I am responsible for me. I take personal responsibility. I can. I can choose. And then the final stage, the real strength of the maturity continuum is that culture of we, and that is what's termed interdependent. And that is when we come together. We can do this. We own the decisions. We are better as a group than we are as any individual part of our team. One of the strategic elements we try and do as a on those away days is just to narrate it better, is we're not individual laptops, we're a supercomputer. We all plug into the central server and the power of us collectively is much stronger than any one element of it. And the final bit on that theory is that you you cannot reach interdependence, the culture of we until you've got a personal mastery of your own independence so you can't go from you to we you've got to get through i first and
0: and, and you, bizarrely that could and another analogy could be that is actually to do with the development of ego, exactly and there are so that. there are theories that you can't let go of ego until you've got a really strong one because if you attempt it too early, you can um, psychologically fragment or, or split so it's this is the thing for me around the paradox and the contradiction it's yeah. it is so interesting yeah. you're saying that we it's not possible on that maturity in that maturity curve idea to go from. The you to the we, You've got to go through
1: I. So just complete that thought for us around what that might look like. So again, for me, it that becomes the awareness of how you are showing up, how you are feeling, and um,
0: and the response and the personal responsibility, and the personal
1: responsibility for choosing how you want to feel. Mm-hmm. So again, anything mm-hmm. can happen to you, but you can own how you want to feel about that. You, you know, there's there's. Uh, John, who runs our um, leadership development stuff, talks about the wheel of reality, which is the the first thing that happens is you notice something, then you think about it because you've noticed it. It drives a thought pattern in your head. The way you think about it will affect how you feel about it and how you feel about it will affect how you act. And then you create the event and it goes round and round and round again. And at some point you have to almost triage or cut into the bit about think. So you notice something and then you think. And that, for me, is the taking personal responsibility, moving to I. Because you, th- you your brain's saying something to you and you can step away and say to your brain, oh no, I don't actually, just because it happened last time doesn't mean it's going to happen this time. Or just because I'm fearful for that future outcome doesn't mean it's going to happen. And I need to stop and breathe and think, okay, that happened in my childhood. I see the world that way, but I'm not right. I, I am just a, a construct of my experiences. So I, I need to just stop and listen. And uh, one of the other things in that is one of Covey's habits, which is seek to understand before being understood. Because if you if you think you know the answer, that is almost certainly your ego talking. And if you start defending your position... Till the end of time, that isn't you. That is your identification with your assumption. And one of the ways to break that is to really, really listen. And I'm not very good at it, so it, it costs me. It costs me energy and time. And and I need to do more of it. But one of the great ways to do it is I, I try and imagine there's a pot in the middle of the table if you're sat around a boardroom or if you're in a meeting room, and you want to fill up that pot with everybody's way of they see the world. Because what's really interesting is when you look at that data set in the pot in the middle of the room that everyone's chucked into, suddenly your own view of the world has changed fundamentally because you will have just learned something. I mean, A good example for me is if somebody asks me, this is how I learned this theory myself, if somebody asks me about school, I have a view on, sc- on secondary school and I had a really horrible start at secondary school. I was really badly bullied at my first secondary school tried it for about a year. My parents took me out and then I went to a different school, which again, I didn't really fit in at because it wasn't part of my social background and I enjoyed it better, but I was always an outlier. So I was an outlier at the first school. I was an outlier at the second school. So somebody says to me, what do you think on secondary school education? I will tell them, but I'm not telling them the truth. I'm not telling them about secondary school education. What I'm telling them is about me. And what I needed to, what I realised that I found through my course of my own learnings is anything I think is just a description of me. It's not a description of the thing I'm talking about. It's I'm telling people my story. And actually what's really helpful is when you hear theirs as well because suddenly your own view of the world changes and that's where the paradigm shift comes.
0: And but that, that's also where the maturity and the wisdom lies in you in being open to that and I know yeah. from and others listening will know how hard that is, and, and the amount of yeah. again I say it again the amount of work that you've done to get to the place where you can tell us these things in the kind of simplicity that and clarity wow. that you are. We are running out of of time, Joel. Mm. I um, so appreciate you coming in and sharing some of these You're things. So They're welcome. Quite extraordinary for me to hear somebody at such a senior level within such a big corporate organization speaking in the way that you are about the things that are important to you and what you've learned mm. for those listening how could what could you suggest or what ideas could you offer how somebody who's listened to you today goes actually that does i may not understand all that Joel has said but I'm really interested in perhaps attempting to put that into action with my leadership team or uh, for the consultants and coaches listening how they might work with a team in in a way that just embraces some of the things that you've shared with us today what might
1: that look like firstly don't beat yourself up because i might sound like i've had some really good self-discovery here and i have but practical application of learning in life is really really hard and i get it wrong again and again and again but if you can reflect and learn then wonderful keep growing continuous improvement on your own sense of self from a practical application in the workplace we've got this brilliant little sum that John taught us. And in fact, we've been using this in different workplaces and contexts for years, and it is E equals T times R. And people that have worked with me in the past will either be going, yeah, wicked, or rolling their eyes at me going on about it again. But it's a simple sum that says effectiveness, your effectiveness as a a leader in the workplace is a simple sum of how well you do your tasks out of 10 multiplied by how well you build Authentic relationships out of 10. And you, if you do that, if you think about that a lot, either in exec meetings as an individual or as a team, you will find quite quickly that you are probably not as effective as you could be. Certainly, the example being if you, you know, if you're cracking at getting stuff done, you've got some really good project plans, you've got some APMP qualified people in your team, you've got super Gantt charts, you do all your free flow, you know, you're getting stuff over the line, benefit realization, wonderful. But in the meantime, you're leaving a trail of distressed souls in your wake. Uh, you can probably give yourself an eight out of 10 for task and maybe a three out of 10 for relationship. And you'll find that eight times three doesn't make you very effective. So you've, you've really got to dial that up. And it comes all the way back to what we said at the beginning you know, you've got to be strong at management, which is task. You've got to be strong at leadership, which for me is relationship. Have a real good go at developing IQ, have a real good go at developing EQ. Don't leave one out at the expense of the others. If you're going to leave one out, leave the IQ out because one of the things I learned on my master's is that emotional intelligence is what is called a meta ability, which it means that you use that to bring the best for your IQ. So if you've got high IQ and low EQ, then actually you're much better off the other way around, arguably, says the theory. Um, so there's some takeaways.
0: Joel, it's been a privilege to talk to you today. I really uh, very much appreciate you coming in and talking to us. Thank you very much.
1: You're very welcome. Thanks for asking me.
0: The you to I to we, Joel Mitchell. Thank you so much for coming in to see us today. You've been listening to Highly Relational. Check out our show notes for more information about today's guest and the topics covered. And if you're enjoying these conversations and getting value from them, do please give us a like or rate wherever you're listening or watching. And of course, there's no better way to support what we're doing than by subscribing. I'd like to thank today's studio manager at VoxPod, Alex Bennett. Our researcher is Ella Hausel, and the series producer is Oli Guillou. I'm Robert Diggings. Thanks for listening and bye-bye.